0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today for another Lozano-Smith podcast. I'm your host, Lone Simmons, a partner out of the Sacramento office of Lozano-Smith and co-litigation practice group chair. We are back to one of those subjects that tends to have a really high listenership, when we put one of these out, but it's gonna be in the arena of special education and in particular student discipline as it relates to special education. And I'm lucky and honored to be joined today by two of our fantastic special education attorneys. First, our office managing partner out of our San Luis Obispo office, Sarah Garcia, a very long time special ed partner and practitioner. Thanks for being here this morning, Sarah.
1: Thanks Sloan, I'm happy to be here
0: and then kate tucker here out of sacramento one of our outstanding special ed attorneys and frequently flying on the oah hearing circuit as of late not a, a rookie to the podcast either kate reminded me before we started today that the last podcast she participated in was one of our highest listened to podcasts ever i hope you can live up to that expectation kate i hope we'll see so sarah kate I- i'm just going to throw out a primary topic, but then then run us forward, but expedited hearings for discipline in the special education context, lay us, lay us the groundwork.
1: So expedited hearings in the special education context are a unique experience and a unique set of circumstances. Um, the Office of Administrative Hearings, OAH, who hears special education disputes in the state of California, Also here is these expedited cases. And there are very limited scenarios under which an expedited case should go forward. And those relate to students being removed from their standard or um, normal placement for the purposes of discipline. Parents who disagree with Any decision regarding the placement of the um, or manifestation determination related to discipline can file for an expedited hearing. So if a student is recommended for expulsion and a manifestation determination happens and is appealed, that would be expedited. Um, But school districts also have the right to file for expedited hearings in the instance that they feel a student, due to the dangerous nature of their behavior, needs to be removed from that placement, and the parents are refusing to consent. So there are very limited circumstances under which an expedited hearing can be pursued. But it is important to remember that if OAH gets a complaint on a special education matter that includes one of these magic words, if it includes manifestation determination, if it includes expulsion, they will often expedite the case even if it was not filed as an expedited request. So it's something we have to be aware of and looking out for um, in case there needs to be a motion to unexpedite if it doesn't actually fit within one of the limited scenarios.
0: Kate, I want to ask you about the differences between an expedited hearing before OAH as opposed to a normal special education due process proceeding. But Sarah, real quick, much more frequently historically as opposed to now and before the ability to do an expedited hearing Uh, when there was the potential of injury to the child or others. We had the judicial process of honing injunctions, right? Where you could go in, parent isn't agreeing to a change in placement, student presents a danger to himself or herself or others, and then you, in essence, seek relief from the court to uh, restrain placement based upon emergency circumstances and that danger and risk because of the student, usually with parallel special ed proceedings still ongoing. With this notion of a expedited due process case, in particular ones for injury to the child or risk of injury to the child or others, is the Honig procedure still available in in unique circumstances?
1: The Honig procedure is still available in unique circumstances, but having this option available to us at OAH um, has streamlined the process a bit. Um, The timelines for these OAH expedited procedures are very fast, very straightforward. And because our OAH judges are so familiar with the needs of special education students, Um, their expertise in that area, their experience in that area, helps us really lay the groundwork when we have to present a case regarding one of these dangerous situations. So both are available, um, but we are seeing districts more and more utilize the OAH expedited procedure when students present a danger, in order to seek a short-term removal and change of placement on on the basis of that danger. Um, while longer-term fate cases are still pending.
0: Got it. Thank you for that bird walk. I mean, the other thing I'm thinking of is, and I, I can't recall if I've ever seen it raised post this procedure going into place under the IDA regs, but if you were a family that you might argue failure to exhaust if you went straight to Honig without first attempting this expedited hearing process. But Kate, talk about the differences, if there are any or what they are, between this expedited process versus a normal due process hearing.
2: Sure. So as Sarah just alluded to, the timelines for hearing and for getting a decision after the hearing is concluded are very fast, are much faster than a non-expedited timeline. So from the date of filing to the date of hearing is 20 school days. So you have to turn around very quickly, prepare your witnesses very quickly. You have a very short window of opportunity to resolve, unlike you do in a regular due process hearing. And We've seen that OAH is now scheduling mediations at the same time that they are issuing their scheduling order because you do not have the time to agree on a mediation date with the family or request a continuance. And that's the other big difference with expedited hearings is they cannot be continued even if the parties wanted them to be. So if the parties wanted to opt out of the hearing dates or opt out of this expedited timeline, or continue for any reason, there have to be exceptional circumstances or that continuance is not going to be granted. And then once the hearing has concluded, OH has 10 school days to issue their decision. And the key aspect of these timelines is that school day reference. So you have 10 school days to get a decision and a school day is defined as even a partial day on which all children are in attendance at that school. So I recently had an expedited hearing where the hearing concluded the day before winter break started. And so winter break did not count as a school day and we ended up actually waiting about three and a half weeks before we received a decision.
0: Can the uh, ALJ extend that timeline? Is there any bases that the ALJ can extend that timeline?
2: The hearing officers themselves cannot choose to extend it's only exceptional circumstances that continuances would be granted.
0: So, Sarah, you teed up the two different scenarios that we might go in for an expedited due process hearing, or a school district might seek one. One being when a, or not, not just a school district, but if the family initiates one. And the one where families are most likely to initiate, or when they challenge the conclusion of a manifestation determination. Can you talk about MDs for our listeners?
1: Sure. So a manifestation determination is a meeting of relevant members of the IEP team, including the parents, who meet to review behavioral incidents any time that behavioral incident is going to trigger a decision that would result in a change of placement. Change of placement can include a recommendation for expulsion, suspensions over 10 cumulative days in a school year where those removals constitute a pattern on the basis of the behavior of the student, or suspensions of 10 consecutive days, which might happen pending expulsion. We've also seen OAH start to extend those manifestation determination requirements to situations like a recommendation for a unilateral transfer from a SARB proceeding, for example. Anything that where student behavior would trigger a recommendation for the student to be moved outside the IEP process for disciplinary reasons would trigger a manifestation determination. Relevant members of the team, and that's supposed to be determined by the district, meet to discuss two questions. And the questions are whether the behavior at issue resulted from the disability, whether there is a causal connection between the behavior and the disability itself, and whether the behavior was caused by the district's failure to implement the IEP itself. It's also important to understand that these manifestation determinations um, are applicable to students with IEPs, with 504 plans, or any student for whom the district had a prior basis of knowledge of a suspected disability on which they did not act. So manifestation determinations happen in a variety of contexts. The team has to meet to review both of those questions. And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, then discipline has to stop. The reason for that is to ensure that we are not disciplining students and changing their placement on the basis of discipline for behavior that is manifesting from, resulting from their disability itself. We wanna avoid what would in essence be disability discrimination if we were punishing them through these disciplinary actions for behavior caused by the disability. This is an extra layer of due process that is built in for students with disabilities to make sure that our discipline procedures are fairly and equitably applied. So we really have to make sure we take those manifestation determinations seriously and that we answer those questions thoughtfully and thoroughly. Manifestation determination is one of the only places In an IEP process where districts are allowed to act without parent agreement or consent. So if we come to the manifestation determination meeting and the district says it is not behavior caused by the disability or resulting from the district's failure to implement the IEP, the district is answering no to both questions and that gives them the right to proceed with the typical disciplinary procedures. If the parent disagrees, they cannot stop that discipline from proceeding on that basis. Instead, the avenue available to them is an expedited hearing with OAH to appeal the manifestation determination. So in order to challenge the determination that the district made at that meeting, they would file one of these expedited cases. And OAH would determine whether or not that manifestation determination by the district members of the IEP team happened correctly, followed the correct procedures, and reached the appropriate conclusion.
0: Sarah, I've got a range of follow-ups for you on this manifestation determination concept. One is, uh, refresh my memory, I feel like in recent years, there's been some clarification as to how we, uh, for lack of better phraseology, add up the 10 days when we have say partial day removals. Can you explain what happens if a student is say suspended, but that occurs at 12 in the day, so they miss half a day as opposed to a full day suspension when we're counting up those 10 days?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. there's there are two real challenges to counting those ten days, right? we We have to determine whether or not there is a pattern when we're counting those ten days, and we have to look at whole days versus partial days. Um, there is inconsistent application uh, and interpretation of the law as to whether partial days count as complete days of suspension. So different districts have taken different approaches on this, and it's important that you understand your district's policies and procedures and implement those consistently as to whether or not partial days count as full days of suspension. Following those procedures is important to make sure that all students are being treated equitably. Once those days are counted, we then have to determine whether or not there is a pattern to those behaviors to decide whether or not there is a change of placement that warrants this manifestation determination. It's important to understand that when we're looking at things like, is there a pattern, different people can have different opinions. It's a very subjective question. And because of that, subjective questions, especially in the world of discipline, open themselves up for implicit bias, and inequitable application. And so we want to make sure that we have policies and procedures in place to address these questions equitably. We also want to make sure that we've considered that what we may not think is a pattern, a judge may think is a pattern, and we don't want to have not conducted a manifestation determination when it's necessary. So the Practical advice and safest course of action is to do a manifestation when you get to 10 days without analyzing whether or not there is a pattern to that behavior. Treating 10 cumulative days in the school year as a recommended change of placement and beginning manifestation determinations at that point. From that point on in the school year, any new behavioral incident resulting in suspension or a recommendation of expulsion would trigger a new manifestation determination to review the new behavioral incident.
0: Thanks Sarah, here's my second follow-up and this is spoken as someone who's usually kind of right on the sideline watching you special ed experts working through the issues but I feel like one of the norms or at least um, the the pattern for u- using that term again that I see occurring is when you have cases where there was no IEP in place or no 504 plan in, in place but there was it comes to the surface that there was a basis of knowledge. It seems like in that scenario, because at that moment you're faced with a situation where for some period of time, the student very well may have been found eligible and very well may have had an IEP, which very well may have, one way or another, prevented the behaviors that are resulting. I feel like the pattern I see occurring a lot is when that scenario pops up, it is maybe one of the more frequent situations where the IEP team, in conducting a manifestation determination, decide to, um, in essence, stop the discipline and send it back because of the unknowns that exist when there was a basis of knowledge and, and no plan yet in place. Is that, is that, am I reading, am I understanding that pattern to be correct, knowing that there's probably exceptions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. These are unfortunately not infrequent scenarios that we see I would say that the typical situation where it presents itself is when a student without a 504 plan or IEP is recommended for expulsion. And as we begin to dig down into the behavior that resulted in the expulsion recommendation, either a parent brings to our attention that there was a suspected disability that has not been assessed, or as staff begin to discuss the student in the scenario, it becomes clear that they have had concerns about this student for a while, and unfortunately, the student did not get referred for assessment on the basis of the staff concerns. In either of those situations, if we had that prior basis of knowledge, a few things automatically kick in. That student is entitled to a manifestation determination, even though they don't yet have an IEP. I call those meetings mental gymnastics because you're asking yourself, you're asking as a team the same two questions, is this resulting from the student's disability, but you haven't yet identified a disability? And is it resulting from a failure to implement an IEP, but they don't yet have an IEP? Those are very challenging questions to answer in the basis of knowledge situations. So what we often see happen is the team go to that table and open up that conversation, and then it's really a factual analysis. If it comes to light that we have a lot of information and really do suspect there's a significant disability that we have not addressed, districts are going to err on the side of making sure that student is appropriately assessed and served, and we are going to stop the discipline while we do that. Sometimes we go to that table and we start asking those questions and we're just not sure. We don't have the assessment yet. We want more information. Um, So, or the parent has asked for an assessment and the ed code requires us to expedite special education assessment if it is requested in the context of an expulsion. So they don't tell us what expedited means, of course, but we interpret that to mean 30 days instead of 60 days, because parents can also simultaneously exercise their 30-day continuance on the expulsion side. And that would give us time to complete that expedited assessment. So what it ends up looking like is oftentimes the team will meet, open a manifestation determination meeting, decide they don't have enough information, recommend or agree to do that expedited assessment, complete that in 30 days, and come back to that manifest table after that student's assessments have been reviewed. So if the student is found eligible based on those expedited assessments, then we would come back and say, now that we know what the disability looks like, did this behavior result from the disability that we have now identified? And if so, we would then stop the expulsion. And if not, then we would be allowed to proceed with that expulsion as necessary.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Kate, would you agree that um, in terms of the options a district has, whether it is conducting the initial or trying to complete the initial MD with or without having to conduct potential assessments because we had a basis of knowledge and we haven't done the assessments yet, or if there has been an MD completed and an expedited hearing has been requested by the parent, that the options a district has, if there's a pending expulsion, at play is to either A, reach an agreement with the family to continue the expulsion hearing to the conclusion of either A, completing assessments and finalizing the MD and or completing the expedited due process hearing and then determining after that is over whether or not to proceed with the expulsion hearing or option two, proceed with the expulsion hearing perhaps because you can't get an agreement for a continuance with the family and you have set timelines to meet knowing that the results of the ultimate pending MD or the ultimate pending MD due process hearing may undo an expulsion Mm -hmm. decision?
2: Yeah, so those are the options and you clearly identified the risk of proceeding with an expulsion hearing. If it comes out that the IEP team in that manifestation determination meeting should have decided that it was a manifestation of his disability, whether that's through completed assessments or the expedited due process hearing, it will undo all of the work that you then did at the expulsion hearing afterwards. So I think it's always better to try to either resolve before you get that far or come into that MD with all the information you need before making that decision.
0: The counter risk being that if you don't proceed and it takes too long, you might run out of line in terms of your timeline for getting the expulsion hearing done right. within the, the school desk. Okay, so how, let's switch, Kate okay, to the other scenario where, where you guys have outlined the potential for an expedited due process hearing, and that is when a district seeks an interim alternative educational setting. Talk to us about, as we're in the middle of SPED and alphabet soup, the I-A-E-S.
2: Sure. So the I-A-E-S, or the Interim Alternative Educational Setting, is the option available to districts in terms of expedited hearings when they think that a child poses a substantial likelihood of injury to either themselves or other students or staff around them. So as Sarah mentioned earlier, we want to ensure that we are not improperly removing or disciplining children for their disabilities. But if we believe that a child is such a danger to themselves or others, There is an option available to districts to file a request for an IAES, and this is to ask the Office of Administrative Hearings to order that a child be placed in a different setting, that maintaining their current placement or their current setting is substantially likely to result in injury to themselves or others. And this is generally moving the child from their current setting to a more restrictive setting. For example, from a regular school to a non-public school, from a non-public school to a residential treatment center, generally you are moving to a more restrictive setting because you are concerned about the likelihood that they are going to injure themselves or others and they need more support or they need more supervision or they need more services. And these placements, these changes in placement to an IAES cannot be for more than 45 school days. So during those 45 school days, you're generally doing additional assessments trying to determine what services, if any, the child needs were they to return to their previous placement or you're holding an IEP meeting to discuss a more appropriate placement for them going forward once those 45 days have ended. Um, But there is an option available to districts to repeat that process. So if in those 45 school days or at the end of the 45 school days, if the district believes the child continues to pose a danger to themselves or others, they can restart the process essentially and ask for another order from OH for another placement of up to 45 school days.
0: So Kate, we talked about it a little earlier and I think I got ahead of you guys in, in terms of your discussion about the Honig process, what are some of the particular differences you would highlight between this process and the Honig injunction process?
2: So they are both available, like Sarah mentioned earlier, they can run simultaneously. So you can have an underlying due process matter where you are seeking an IES and also seeking a court order for a Honig injunction. And essentially, the difference in seeking an IAS is the, the timeline available to you. So it's, a, it's an ordered 45 school day or no more than 45 school day placement. So you're guaranteed a specific amount of time that that child is going to be placed in an alternative setting, and generally the district is requesting a very specific setting, so you're going into this hearing knowing where you want that child placed and knowing why you want them placed there. So, you're not simply asking for them to be removed from school because they're a danger, you're asking for them to also then be placed in a very specific setting that you think is to their benefit.
0: Yeah, honing is always an interesting scenario when it arises, and it's. I would say we, we see a case like it and then we end up in court every, I don't know, five years is probably too frequent. Uh, but a number of interesting issues can arise when we seek them, including we often seek them in state court, uh, depending on counsel on the other side, because of the underlying IDEA issues, those will get removed to federal court. And then once you get to federal court, uh, you know, you're sometimes arguing the same thing, but it's often that those cases then, because of the timeline of how that process takes and with the simultaneous spent proceedings occurring, you don't ever necessarily get to the end of a court ordered honing injunction, but you get some type of resolution by way of the the pressure of those proceedings occurring on all parties. Sarah, how about uh, good old stay put um, during disciplinary challenges, ones which, which can, well, they can last a while in terms of the proceedings you know, as to challenging an MD or discipline, et cetera.
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting part of this topic because for the most part, discipline placements are an exception to the stay put rule. So where districts have the right to change placement on the basis of disability, if they have complied with all of their due process rights and all of their procedures, they should have that right to change placement temporarily while the due process is proceeding on the discipline itself. So generally, stay put is designed to hold a student in their last agreed upon implemented IEP program while a dispute between district and family is resolved. And the idea there is that in the state of California, we cannot change a special education student's placement unilaterally as a district. We have to have parental consent. That is a state requirement, parent consent to implement an IEP and change placement. So if there is a dispute over placement, a student generally stays in whatever the last agreed upon and consented to placement was. In the disciplinary context, generally stay put does not keep a student in their last agreed upon and implemented placement. They generally stay in the disciplinary placement while the disciplinary procedures are occurring. So if a student is recommended for expulsion, a manifestation determination takes place. The district decides it was not a manifest of the student's disability, says no to both questions and decides to proceed with that expulsion. And the district has met its obligation to have a pre-expulsion conference on the general education side of the house and determined that the students return to campus pending expulsion would constitute a danger and on that basis has extended the suspension pending expulsion. Those same procedures would apply to a student on an IEP and the student on the IEP could stay in extended suspended status pending the expulsion. Two things would be different. The first is if The student has an IEP starting on day 11 of removal, whether that is for suspension, pending expulsion, on day 11 cumulatively in a school year, a student with an IEP is entitled to receive services while they are removed. While they are suspended, they should be receiving individual services. And those services must be designed by the district to give the student access to the general education curriculum, as well as their special education goals and objectives, their special education program and services. So while suspended, that student would have access to those services. The second exception would be if for some reason one of these procedures had not been followed, right? So for example, we have seen recently some atypical orders from the Office of Administrative Hearings on the stay-put issue in the disciplinary context. We've In the last few weeks, we've seen two orders from OAH, different judges, different districts, different areas of the state, where parents have filed for stay-put in an expedited hearing challenging a manifestation determination. And OAH has granted stay put and sent those students back to the school from which they were suspended where the discipline occurred, even though they are pending expulsion at this point. In both of those orders, it appears that OAH did that because the district did not properly determine that the students return to campus constituted a danger. The district did not have evidence that at that pre-expulsion conference, they properly considered whether or not the student could come back to the school safely pending expulsion or whether or not due to their dangerous situation, they needed to stay suspended. So we have seen OAH really starting to crack down on the stay put issue. That doesn't mean that students will always stay put at their school original school of placement pending discipline, but it does mean we have to be very careful about complying with those procedures. Again, understanding that these procedures are an extra level of due process to which students with disabilities are entitled. And we have to make sure that we are implementing those thoroughly and that we have documentation and proof that they have been implemented thoroughly before we proceed with those disciplinary strategies.
0: Sarah, just out of curiosity, did, did have any of these recent OAH orders that you just described involved behaviors that are mand- mandatory, mandatory expulsions and therefore, you know, are of the nature that the, the presumed danger of the student is built in to the charge, you know, sell drugs, sexual assault, gun possession, et cetera.
1: That's an excellent question. I I don't know what the underlying behavior was because that was not addressed in the orders that I reviewed. The expulsion charges themselves were not addressed in the orders because the orders were really looking at the manifestation determination issue being on appeal rather than the expulsion charges. But generally, we're looking to expel students for behavior that is dangerous right we're we're not generally looking to expel students unless we believe their presence constitutes a danger and personally i don't think we should be looking to expel students unless their presence constitutes a danger we're really lo- using expulsion as a tool for school safety not just for removal of students and and i think that's particularly important for students with disabilities who need access to their program and services, and we don't have a lot of fantastic options for serving students with disabilities who are expelled from school. So I have to assume that in these situations, the students' presence would have constituted a danger or they would not have removed them from school. What OAH really focused on in those orders wasn't what the behavior was, it was whether or not the district had documented the discussion of returning them to campus at that pre-expulsion conference.
0: Interesting, which is your extension of suspension conference under Ed Code 48911G. Um, and, and usually in those discussions, you're accounting for what would in essence be all the evidence in the expulsion packet were you to proceed forward often with commentary and input from the site staff as well as the district level staff member who has expertise and experience in discipline. So I feel like that it may be splitting hairs a little too tight by by OAH in that circumstance, especially where uh, the, the idea of keeping them removed is a safety issue, but so it goes, you guys are both darn near geniuses. I love listening to you guys talk about these issues. Sarah, one of your last comments just reminded me that we probably could spend another 30 minutes on propriety of placement of special ed students. On expulsion, but we will save that for another podcast. Especially if Kate is right, that she she earns another very high listener mark for this one. But as we close out, uh, a a final takeaway from each of you on this area.
2: Sure. So I think a key takeaway, at least for me, in terms of the interim alternative educational setting aspect of this, is that historically it's been a very high burden. And to obtain an order allowing a district to place a child in an interim alternative educational setting. And physical injury has been all but required in order to obtain such a change in placement. But we did recently get a decision from OAH in which the child in question made a number of threats against various students and staff, both. At his current school and other high schools as well, um, of serious bodily injury, including you know, murder and sexual assault, he himself had not yet committed any physical injury in such a way as he was threatening to do. But the level and descriptiveness of his threats was causing such emotional and mental harm to the students and staff around him that OAH ordered a 45 school day interim alternative educational setting despite no physical injury having yet occurred. So I think it's a a glimmer of hope to this idea that we don't have to wait for a physical injury to occur before we can remove a child or change their placement to a more restrictive setting through this process. It's only one decision amongst many decisions that speak to the contrary, but I think the degree of danger communicated through his threats demonstrated to OAH that he was a danger to himself or others if he was allowed to remain in that setting, even if he had not yet acted on any of those threats.
0: Sarah?
1: Yeah, I I love that takeaway, Kate, because we do get that question so often. You know, we we don't want to have to wait until someone gets hurt. So I think that's so important. Um, My takeaway on the manifestation determination appeal issue in particular is the importance of thorough analysis by your school psychologist, looking at not the way a specific disability might appear, but how it actually does exist for this particular child. So ADHD looks different in 10 different children, it presents 10 different ways. An emotional disturbance in 10 different children presents 10 different ways. We're not looking conceptually at the kind of eligibility that the student has. We're looking very closely at how it presents for that particular child and whether or not the behavior at issue resulted from that specific student's disability. We recently litigated an appeal for a district um, in July appealing a manifestation determination question. And in that particular instance, we had a student who had behavior services and a behavior intervention plan. He had the support of a one-to-one aide all day at school. He had some significant areas of need. And in the middle of some very challenging behaviors had committed what appeared to everyone at the district to be an intentional assault on a teacher. And the team determined that while several of his behaviors that day were a manifestation of his disability, the assault itself was not. And the school psychologist was able to analyze the chain of events and look at the intentionality and the decision-making and the communication that was taking place to really draw a distinction between these behaviors and to outline for the team and then the judge on appeal, how those behaviors presented and the significant differences between those behaviors. And the judge was persuaded by that and agreed. And the reason that's an important takeaway for me is because we hear a lot the question of, well, the student has a behavior plan, does that mean we can never discipline them? Or the student has an emotional disturbance, that means they can never be expelled. And, and those global categorizations are too broad. We have to look very specifically at the behavior at issue and at the student at issue and analyze the facts of that particular situation. And the school psychologist has the expertise, has the experience, um, and should be the one who's really leading that discussion. But the more thorough and thoughtful that analysis can be, and the more robust the discussion at the meeting, the better that that is documented, the more likely that you will be successful on those manifestation determination appeals.
0: Good stuff, Ms. Garcia, good stuff. And to our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in to Lozano-Smith Podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozano forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. And also make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Sarah, Kate, you guys are pros. This was great. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sloan. Thanks, Sloan.
0: If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice we recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.